Um, I'm going to go back up and uh, I'm going to read uh, the passage that leads into this one more time, just so that we can make sure we're in context. Um, this is 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18. And tonight we're just going to focus on 17 and 18. My goal is to get through uh, chapter 7, verse 3, I believe. The Apostle Paul writes, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord or agreement, right, has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God has said. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So he asks a bunch of questions there. We would call those rhetorical questions, right? Um, what, ha- you know, what agreement has the temple of God with idols and so forth? And of course, the expected answer to all those questions is what? None, no, right? So why are we allowing this division in our hearts and minds? Um, We're going to jump down here then uh, where he says, I'm going to make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is the reason why we go out from among them. God is holy. Whatever belongs to God becomes holy. So this is what I said to you guys, um, to you all, sorry. There's only two guys in here, so. Um, This is what I said to you all in the sermon where I talked about um, going all the way back to Advent. And we were talking about, we were ending the series on the Holy History. And I talked about the prophets. And I talked about uh, how God used Israel and touched the timeline. And that's what makes Israel holy. That's what makes it holy history, right? History without God is just history. We're just traveling along without any direction or guidance. But if God touches your life, when you commit yourself to Christ, then you are holy. It's not just these very, very specialized people uh, that you know the Catholic Church calls saints that are saints. The most common word for what we would call a Christian in the New Testament is not Christian. That's only used a couple of times, but the most common word is um, holy ones, saints, right? Well, we're holy because we belong to God and God is holy. And if we're going to be in the presence of God, and we are, okay, when you open your mind and you open your heart and you receive Christ, that means you're receiving the Holy Spirit. The what spirit? Holy Spirit. He comes in and he's living with you. So what are we running around acting unholy for, right? Playing the fool, doing foolish things. God has greater uh, a greater purpose for us, right? So um, I want you to notice something that we don't work ourselves into a situation where God pays attention to us. 
okay? God chooses first. He says, I'm going to come in. I'm going to walk among you. I'm going to be your God, and then you will be my people, okay? He chooses. Now, we have to choose back, but he chooses first. My good deeds don't attract God's attention, much less obligate him to favor me. I will be their God comes before and they shall be my people. We don't become his people by working our way into it, by doing godly things. He doesn't wait for us to earn our way into his family. It has been said, God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. So anytime anybody in the Bible got into the presence of God, they were immediately aware of their own sin. Nobody stands up with their chest out before God and screams and shakes a bony fist. Now we do that prayer sometimes, you know, if we're going to be just completely honest, but man, when you sense the presence of God, it drives you to your knees. It humbles you immediately, right? It's uh, Isaiah in his call in Isaiah chapter six. He says, I saw the Lord uh, high and exalted and the train of his robe filled the temple. So he had this vision of God. What was his response to this vision of God, right? He, oh, he heard the angels, right? These seraphim. Uh, interestingly, that's a word in Hebrew, seraph, that just means fire. So the only way you can express the, the nature or appearance of these angels is just by calling them fire, right? The seraphim. And they were crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, right? And in the presence of God, that holiness, um, the, the first thing that Isaiah was aware of was he was going to be God's spokesman, right? That's what a prophet is. He's God's spokesman or she is God's. There are prophetesses. Um, we're, we're spokespeople for the Lord. And the first thing he was made aware of was that he wasn't worthy of that. And he said, woe is me for I am a man of unclean lips, right? My speech is profane, I can't say anything right, right? I, I'm, you know, I, I'm aware of my of of my my weakness, my inadequacy. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. We don't talk right. Well, that's us, right? But what was God's response to that confession? One of the angels took a coal from the altar and touched his lips and said, "You have been made clean." And then he doesn't just, you know, keep listening to Isaiah cry on and on and, and, you know, wail and moan about how unclean he is. No, now he's been made clean. And now God immediately gives him uh, his call and um, sends him out, right? So um, God moves first, but then I move, right? Grace doesn't mean I don't have anything to do. I have a choice to make. I accept the call. I heed the call. So we're in church all the time, right? I'm preaching, preaching, preaching. Okay. But I don't know who's really listening. Right? Hearing is usually considered to be, uh, you know, the biological capability of sound entering your earway. Okay. And you at least being capable of processing that, right? You're hearing. I have limited hearing in my right ear. So in order to hear anybody, I have to, you'll often see me, somebody comes up and tries to whisper in my ear and I'll 
turn my neck all the way around like this because I can't hear you in this ear. If you whisper in this ear, it's just funny to me, right? Because I can't hear you. It's like, uh, oh, we just got through the Christmas season. Did you see It's a Wonderful Life? All right, George Bailey loses the hearing uh, in his left ear, I think, for George Bailey is what it was. And uh, uh, his uh, future wife, when she's, you know, a kid, looks like about a 12-year-old kid, um, when he's he's at the, the drugstore and he's dipping out some ice cream for her, and she, she reaches down to whisper because she knows that he's lost the hearing in that ear rescuing his brother. And she says, is this your good ear, George? And she says, George Bailey, I will love you till the day I die, right? <laughs> and he can't hear. He just gets up with his, you know, and this and this. And, you know, he's talking about coconuts and, you know, and the furthest. It's so perfect. I know. Male, female, and the relationship there, right? Um, yeah, so he couldn't hear her. Now, had she said that in his good ear, would he have listened? See, that is, would he have paid attention? Would he have taken what she said seriously? And that's what we're doing in here. Well, there's so many distractions, uh, you know, uh, and it's hard to tell because we, we're, we're reading our Bible on our phones. But I'm sitting here, you know, if I, if I read a book, I, I do it electronically and I have a Kindle and it's just, that's all it is. I don't need to be getting texts and emails and Facebook notifications and all this other stuff. Because if I'm going to read a book, I want to read the book, right? But there's a lot of times when I read it on my phone. But there's so many things going on, it's just a distraction. Well, this is the other reason why um, I really tried to get everybody during the pandemic to watch our service on YouTube. I wasn't even going on Facebook Live because while there are people who are able to focus and do watch us on Facebook and maybe watching us right now, there's just so many distractions that are there, okay? YouTube is really the same way. I mean, if you want completely dis distraction-free, it streams to our website, all right? And you can watch it on our website. But one way or the other, whether you're sitting in church or whether you're sitting at home watching the stream, there's just all of these distractions. You have to choose to pay attention. You have to choose to listen. God is calling. Do you hear him? Will you pay attention? And if you pay attention, will you participate in that calling. Well, what you'll see today is that God has called us to come out of the world. Um, I like this, this uh, line from the, an old uh, country gospel song. Um, oh, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through, right? Um, in Micah 2.10, he says, uh, the prophet says to the people, get up, go away, for this is not your resting place because it is defiled. It is ruined beyond all remedy. I think we're getting there in our culture. I'm not ready to give up on our country quite yet, but our culture is ruined. It's defiled beyond all remedy. Um, we've got to go out from among them. We've got to separate ourselves from a godless world, from a uh, what has become an antichrist culture that is increasingly hostile to Christians, or at least biblical Christians and Christian values. 
On the concept of uh, God's people separating from the world, the biblical uh, the word biblical commentary makes the following observation. Quote, the point has been well made that the very essence of the history of Israel is in the words, get thee out. That was the word of God that came to Abraham, as the authorized version has it. That would be the KJV. Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house. You know, I hadn't even thought about that. But it all started with Abraham leaving the polytheistic culture, right? in Ur of the Chaldees and God sending him all the way to Canaan, which of course was also full of uh, godless uh, polytheists who were worshiping their gods in these horrific ways. But God told Abraham, I'm going to make this your place. It's going to be your people's place. Well, it took hundreds of years before that happened and even before they took possession of Canaan and hundreds of years beyond that, before they finally got rid of all their idols, right? Um, So long as the world is fallen and people are in rebellion against God, chasing after the lies perpetrated by the devil, we who believe in the one way, right? The one who said he is the way, the truth, and the life must be different. We've got to eschew participation in unbelieving or evil or godless activities. We're called to be holy, friends, because God is holy. That's what he says. You shall be holy for I am holy. It's quoted in 1 Peter 1.16 and it comes from Leviticus 19.2 and in other places. And as I said, as I started this, holy means to be like God. And that cannot happen apart from personal involvement and transforming work from God. Uh, sometimes we associate holy, being holy with religious forms, right? Genuflecting and, or raising hands or, you know, if you, from a Catholic context, you know, holy is the, the church that you enter and all of the objects of worship and so forth. Um, but that's really not it. We're not holy by virtue of eating or avoiding certain foods or by wearing special garments, by occupying sacred places, we're holy because we belong to God. And we will act holy when we follow Jesus as we live our lives among the lost and fallen world. That's what we're called to be. Go out from among them. Be ye separate, right? Now, the extreme of that happened... um, not too long after Christianity became um, uh, legal in the Roman Empire. And it was called the monastic movement, okay? So this is uh, the story of Christianity, a uh, history of uh, the Christian church. And the author is uh, uh, Justo Gonzalez, Justo Gonzalez, right? Um Here's what he says about uh, the monastic reaction to Christianity becoming legal, and now um, it became the norm in the Roman Empire, and it lowered Christian standards. So Christians were not any different from anybody in the rest of the world. This has happened throughout the history of the church, by the way. This is why how Methodism came about. This is why the theology in Methodism is not too much different than the theology in the Anglican church. 
because John Wesley, he, he created afternoon meetings. They still went to the Anglican church, but he created afternoon meetings and he called it, are you ready for this? The Holy Club. Now that sounds kind of goofy to us, the Holy Club, right? But they were serious. They were organized. They were methodical. Hence, people outside looking in called them Methodists because of how methodical they were about following Jesus and being disciplined. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, didn't really found it as a separate denomination. It was a reaction to the worldliness and the deadness that he found in the Anglican church of the time. The deadness, even if there's lots of lights going on and, you know, people listening to, you know, wonderful music and all this other stuff in a Christian church. What I wonder is what it would be like if we just shut the sound off. Just go acapella, right? Just sing nice and quiet, turn all these lights off, just standard lighting, no screen, no any of that. I think we'd find that there's just a lot of deadness and there's a need to react to that, okay? So Gonzalez writes, the new situation now, so Methodism happened in the 18th century. Now we're going all the way back to the 6th century. The new situation of the church after Constantine, well, actually, begin, if we're beginning with Constantine, that's the fourth century. The new situation of the church after Constantine's peace was not equally received by all. Over against those who, like Eusebius of Caesarea, this is somebody he had spoken of in the previous chapter, saw the more recent events as the fulfillment of God's purposes, there were those who bewailed what they saw as the low level to which Christian life had descended. The narrow gate of which Jesus had spoken had become so wide that countless multitudes were hurrying past it, some seemingly after privilege and position without caring to delve too deeply into the meaning of Christian baptism and life under the cross. Bishops competed with each other for uh, prestigious positions. The rich and powerful seemed to dominate the life of the church. The tares were growing so rapidly that they threatened to choke out the wheat, okay? So what happens? You have a group of men who start their own holy club. They separate out, okay? And there there were women who did this as well, okay? So you have, for example, uh, St. Benedict. Much later, you have St. Francis, after whom the current pope named himself. They chose to separate themselves and create their own communities, right? Now, um, you have uh, monastic groups in other religions as well, right? Um, You have Buddhist monks, and it's the same idea. There is this separate community from the main culture and society. Well, our culture has become uh, toxic to practicing Christians. There are sociopolitical forces at work against biblical Christian faith in government, in the media, the tech industry, the corporate world, and at every level of public and college education, even private schools, Right. What should our response as genuine followers of Jesus be? 
Certainly, we should be voting and spending our money in accordance with biblical values. However, we may need to look at what one writer called the Benedict option. Again, this is named after a famous monk, um, St. Benedict, right? So what is it? According to Rod Dreher, who uh, came up with this concept or this, he didn't come up with the concept, but he came up with the name, the Benedict option. But this is what he, what he said. It is my name for an inchoate phenomenon in which Christians adopt a more consciously countercultural stance toward our post-Christian mainstream culture. And then he continues. What I propose is that we Christians should should soberly, but with a sense of urgency, discuss and act to build these communities. And I, I will, he's referring to a quote from another uh, writer, and I will give you that quote concerning, quote unquote, these communities in a minute. We should act with a sense of urgency, discuss uh, building these communities now because the power of the secular popular culture is dissolving Christianity. Christians, especially in the United States, have been able to live for a long time as if the mainstream culture reinforced what we believe to be true. This hasn't actually been true for a very long time, but now nobody can possibly believe that. Now, this was, he wrote uh, this uh, Benedict, uh, Benedict option uh, in 2015, 16, 17. And we're much further down the road now, okay? Um, The Benedict option is a call for cultural resistance through building endurance and resilience within ourselves, our families, and our communities. Now, when he says these communities, here's what he was referring to. Quote, the construction of new forms of community within which the moral life could be sustained so that both morality and civility might survive the coming ages of barbarism and darkness. Friends, we don't have to create new communities. We have to revive our church. The church is that community. Jesus established the church for this exact purpose. Christianity has... Um, survived sustained persecution for over 2,000 years. Christians in other countries are being slaughtered right and left. And as Tertullian, uh, a church father that I'll refer to on Sunday in our study of John, as Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And here we were in the middle of the pandemic getting used to not going to church. I don't mean we in this room, but, you know, I, I wrote a little, uh, little essay that I don't think many people read. Uh, and it's, it's the fact it should be the, it's the next to the, the latest thing on my blog. Go to dual.com. But it's called uh, Church is Essential. So, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, a church is not essential. Stay home. Oh, but if you want to buy weed and you're living in Colorado, the pot shops are open. If you want to go get some, you know, some liquor, the liquor stores are open. Right? Uh, you know, we want you not to crowd together, but if you go to Walmart, that's fine. Okay? Well, obviously, we need to buy food, all these other things. But it takes faith to understand how essential the church is. It's absolutely essential. Further, your family is essential. 
These are the institutions, these are the communities that God created and God established to continue to teach those Christian values and to pass those on to our children, right? To strengthen one another. Church is not just something you go to for an hour on Sunday. Listen to somebody like me talk, okay? We support one another. Now, the beauty of, you know, having all this ability to communicate outside of uh, personal meeting is that we can carry on this communication with one another, right? We can create these little social media groups and all these, you know, I'm sure you guys know how to do all of these things. We can create this community, but it's absolutely essential. Church is essential. If we're going to survive all of the assaults on Christian faith, then we can't just sit at home and do nothing, right? Sit at home and watch, you know, endless episodes of whatever, um, you know, just chilling and hanging out. No, man, we've got to gather together. We got to be here. Um, and thankfully, I'm, I'm glad those of you that listen online, those of you that are listening to the podcast and so forth, but man, you need to get into church. And a lot of you already are. So I'm not trying to gripe at you, but we need this community. God walks among us. Have you considered what that means? He sees it all. He experiences it all. He has to deal with it all. And that's why we need the atonement of Jesus Christ and his intercession for us constantly because we never get to the place where we live this life on our own. This is why go out from among them and be ye separate, okay? Develop these communities where people, but it's not just separate and alone and apart from the world. It is separating unto the Lord. He's walking among us. He's with us. Um, There's never a time when we're without accountability because God sees what you watch, hears what you listen to, and witnesses your struggle with or capitulation to temptation. He's there all along. That's why just talk to the Lord. Are you sad? Are you mad? Are you fearful? Are you worried? Tell the Lord. Well, he already knows. Of course he knows. That's not the point of prayer. The point of prayer is to carry on a relationship with the Lord and to receive from him. This is what I say in funerals. Um, You know, I tell people that uh, they need to allow themselves to mourn. Okay? They need to work through that. They need to move through that. But there is a blessing to doing that in the Lord because Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. So when you're deeply saddened, when you're incredibly angry, when you're when you're you're you know overwhelmingly worried about something or fearful, then you don't let those emotions overwhelm you and overrun you. You pour that out to the Lord. Okay? Find wherever it is you can do that, get in the bathroom, get in your car, you know, wherever you can do it. And then just let the Lord comfort you. Let him speak back to you. And this is why I say also get into the word, right? In order to welcome God's presence, we need to remain in agreement with him. And that will mean we are in fundamental disagreement with the world. To agree with God is to be in disagreement with the world, right? The scripture says that if you love the world, the love of the father is not in you. 
okay? It's the love of the world. That's the equivalent of loving the godless world, the godless culture, okay? Because that same word, world, is used to refer to the people of the world when Scripture says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But when it says, do not love the world or the things in the world, it's talking about the culture, right? It's talking about this godless world that is opposed. Um, so if you're worried about being cool, accepted, making money, living this life, then you're going to compromise. You're going to compromise. Um, William Barclay relates an incident from the ancient church that we need to hear. Here's what he said. Time and again in the early church, the choice came to people came to people between the security of their jobs and their loyalty to Jesus Christ. It is told that a man came to the early church father, Tertullian. There he is again. He told him his, this problem. He told him his problem. He told this, this man, came to Tertullian and told him his problem. And then he said, but after all, I must live. Must you, said Tertullian. There were many who were martyred for their faith. And that continues down to our time, uh, our time down to our day. The way to overcome this world is to give up the world but never give up your faith in Christ. What we see today is people taking on the values of the world, embracing the culture, twisting Christian faith into something that looks nothing like biblical faith, okay? Or just walking away from church altogether, walking away from their faith. Oh, I believe in God. I'm sure he's out there somewhere. Well, congratulations, the demons believe. And they shudder. And they're sure not going to heaven. We've got to hang on to our faith in Jesus. Um, scripture says in Revelation 12, 11, uh, of those that were being martyred, or that will be, and they overcame him, that is the devil, by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, and they love not their lives unto death. So, um, let's move on to chapter seven. I may be able to finish this tonight. With this in mind, okay, bear in mind, there were no chapter divisions. There were no verse divisions. This was just a letter. Since we have these promises that God is going to walk among us, right? And be our God and we'll be his children. He'll be our father. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Well, what is your response to God welcoming us into his family, becoming our father and walking in our midst? We behave as sons and daughters. We become increasingly more like Jesus. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God's trying to make you like Jesus. Let him. Okay? Um, you know, he's the potter, you're the clay. Let him mold you. Let him make you. And then, of course, as I quoted earlier, be holy for I am holy. So how do I cleanse myself? That's what it says right there, right? Um, cleanse, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. Well, Scripture says, 1 John 1, 9, do you know it? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I immediately admit it to the Lord. But when I admit it as sin, I don't just say, yeah, 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 I know it's wrong, but no. Then you're not really admitting it's sin. When you're admitting it's sin, you're admitting it's failure. 
You're admitting that God says it's wrong and you agree it's wrong. And you agree it's wrong for you. And you do that immediately. This is more than agreeing that the Bible says your actions are sinful or admitting that God is opposed to certain choices you've made. You must really believe that what you're doing is wrong. It's wrong for you. Change your mind about your choices and change your lifestyle so that it aligns with faith in Christ. And of course, you're not going to be consistent with this without the intervention uh, and, and assistance from the Lord. Okay. And, but that doesn't mean that you do nothing. Uh, as I've quoted many times here, um, Dallas Willard said, "God is not opposed to effort, or grace is not opposed to effort; it is opposed to earning." God's grace saves us. We're saved by grace through faith. Okay, but that doesn't mean that we don't need to put some diligence into our actions uh, and live ourselves, live our lives as disciples. Okay. I have a part to play in the ongoing process of sanctification. I must choose to practice righteousness. That is to actually live right. I need to do justice. I need to actively love God with all of my heart, which means I talk to him. I listen to his word and I do what he says. I'm saved by grace through faith. My relationship with God is dependent on on grace and maintained by grace. However, I must act. I must do I must live out my faith. Now, I thought I was going to go down to four tonight, but actually uh, we shift again in verse two. So um, if you remember all the way back in chapter two, the Apostle Paul, I think right somewhere around verse 14, the Apostle Paul entered into this extended theological discussion that we've been in for the last several months, Okay. But now he jumps right back into what he had originally been discussing with the Corinthians. The original motivation for 2 Corinthians uh, is winning back the affection and the confidence of the Corinthian church to Paul and to his message, right? And so that's what he does next. He goes back to that. I'm just going to read this and then I'll make a a proposal. I'm going to see what you guys think. And uh, once I read this, friends online, then we're going to go offline and you can join us again next week or you can come to church Sunday, all right? Or join us Sunday. But let me read this first. The Apostle Paul writes, make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all of your affliction, I am overflowing with joy. So that doesn't even seem to really follow, right, from what we just read. But we understand that this is a free-flowing sermon, if you will, that the Apostle Paul is preaching to them. And so he's gone along at the very beginning. So really, if you read chapters one and two down to, I think about verse 14, I need to go back and look. And then you jumped over to chapter seven, verse two, you would see how they fit together. Okay. This is the original purpose of the letter here to the Corinthians. But he got into all of these very important theological and doctrinal topics right? That we've been chasing for the last several months. Okay. All right. So God bless you. Those that joined us online, we appreciate it. Hopefully we'll see you Sunday or next Wednesday.